Good morning. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And a welcome to those of you watching online as well. Man, I've missed y'all. I uh, have not been with you the last few weeks, but I bring greetings uh, from some of our sister congregations from Redemption Flagstaff. I was there a couple weeks ago to help pray for uh, the new lead pastor who's there, Anthony. And then last week I was preaching at Redemption Church Gilbert. Uh, They had invited me a few months back, and so I said yes. And so it turned out that actually it was the church picnic day at uh, Redemption Gilbert. We did a picnic uh, a few months ago. We were ahead of them, Uh, but they copied our idea. But they also got bounce houses, and when four-year-old Hank saw the bounce houses, he said, I'm never going back to Gateway. And uh, the kid's a liar. He's here today. So, um, but I bring you greetings from those congregations. It is good to be uh, together uh, across the state of Arizona, united in our commitment to the Lord. Um, but man, I sure did miss you. So let me tell you what's coming up in terms of preaching the next month or so. Uh, so next uh, Sunday is Mother's Day. Uh, gentlemen, Remember that. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. Uh, We're going to actually take a break from John on Mother's Day. We're doing baby dedications, and I'm going to do a message to really try to encourage all of you parents and grandparents uh, from the scriptures. So that's what we're going to do next week, and then we'll get back into John uh, for the rest of May. And then starting in June, we're going to take a break from uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah over the summer. So that's where we're headed, and that's what we're going to do. And and so today we finish John chapter 2. 11. And, and in this chapter, in this verse in particular, these passages is really kind of a point of no return. Have you ever reached in your life a point of no return? I remember this uh, about 10 years ago, Molly and I were celebrating our 10th anniversary and we said, you know what, let's go to Colorado and let's go skiing uh, for our 10th anniversary. That sounds like a lot of fun. And I grew up in Colorado, but didn't really ski after about 10 years old. So I'm not like some sort of ski, skiing expert or anything. And Molly had never been skiing. And so we thought, all right, let's go uh, to this ski resort. We went to Copper Mountain and uh, the, the mountains in Colorado, they're just different. I mean, they're bigger than here and everywhere. And we thought, let's go skiing. And so we were smart about it. We had a three-day lift ticket we thought, you know what, the first day, let's just get lessons, right? None of us know what we're doing, but we're athletes. We'll pick it up quick. So we we get the lessons and uh, we kind of learn the basic stuff. And then, you know, they kind of say, all right, here's your bunny hill, go crazy. And so we start going down the bunny hill and we are crushing it. I mean, we are like just nailing this whole skiing thing. And so we talk to the instructor, we say, hey, we kind of feel like we're past this. Uh, but what's our best next step? Well, it was early in the season, and so all the green runs were closed. And he said, well, I don't really know what to tell you because you're not really ready for the blues, but the greens are all closed, so may, I, don't, I don't know what to say. And we just kind of said, okay, we did the bunny hill for a few more times, and we're finally like, we were both athletes. How hard can it be? So we get on the lift, and we ride up. And if you've ever been on a lift to go skiing in Colorado, it's like at the point at which you think, we should probably be getting off right now. It's, you're only like a quarter of the way to the top, right? And so you get to the top and it's like, wow, this is steeper than the bunny hill, right? And we're, we're on a blue now. And so um, we start going down and I mean, it is not long before we're falling. Uh, Molly's pretty much just scooting down the mountain on her rear end and mostly laughing at me while I'm falling. Uh, meanwhile, we see these like four and five-year-old kids just zooming by us because they had learned something that we were not taught in our class, which was how to turn. (laughs) Hello, that might be important. We just were taught to snowplow, which only goes so far because of gravity, right? So we're like, man, we are like way on top of this mountain. How are we gonna ever get down? This is gonna take all day. 
And finally, I'm like, you know what? Let's go for it. And so I get up and I take off and about 20 seconds later, I'm thinking, this is the point of no return. I will either stay on my skis or I will die on this mountain. And I, it was just kamikaze down the hill and I, I'm here to talk about it. So I guess we know how that, but you get up there and you go like, this is it. This is the decisive moment. There is no turning back now. And that's what we have in this passage. We have the moment where the Jewish leaders who've been opposed to Jesus all along have now reached the point at which there's no turning back. They're going to kill him as a result of this particular uh, story. It says in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, John, who was a disciple of Jesus, a friend of Jesus, an eyewitness to Jesus, he's been hinting, he's been dropping these little breadcrumbs throughout the book that have all been leading up to this point. He's been hinting at the fact that Jesus came to die as a substitute for sins. Let me show you some of these breadcrumbs. John chapter one, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lambs were used as sacrificial animals. And Jesus is called the Lamb of God. John chapter two, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's saying my body's about to be destroyed. John chapter three, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which he did that on a pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is Jesus foretelling that he will be crucified so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In John chapter six, Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here's how I'm gonna feed you world. I'm gonna die in your place. Finally, John chapter 10. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. So all of this has been hinted at, but now we reach the point of no return. And actually from chapter 12 to the end of the book is just gonna cover the last two weeks of Jesus' life. It's gonna spend an extraordinary, inordinate amount of time on the moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And that pivotal moment all happens in this story. Now, what creates this pivotal moment is what we looked at last week in John chapter 11. So most of John chapter 11 is the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was sick, and rather than just healing him right away, it says Jesus stayed where he was for a few days, waited till Lazarus died. In fact, Jesus, Lazarus had been dead for four days to the point that his body was gonna be stinky, and he shows up and raises him from the dead. It's an amazing miracle. All throughout chapter 11, you see that Jesus knows that by doing this, it's going to seal his own fate. That only if Lazarus lives, he'll die. And sure enough, that's what happens. Jesus raises Lazarus. And so now we have the meeting where they decide in light of this happening, what do we do? And we're gonna see four key lessons about the heart of the gospel and how hard it is to believe and what it means. So that's what we're gonna look at today. Let's pray and we'll dive into it. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, the Lamb of God, the temple who was lifted up, who gave his flesh, his life for us, who laid his life down and who took it back up. 
And we pray now that you would use your word to help us to know Christ, to be encouraged by him, to have new life in him. And we pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first lesson that we have from this short passage, it's not a bunch of verses, it's just 45 to 54. The first lesson we have is that unbelief is more irrational than you think. Unbelief is more irrational than you think. We all think of ourselves as pretty rational people, right? I, I know the facts and I know the science and I've studied stuff and I'm a logical thinker and I'm not kind of getting suckered by illogical thinking. We all think of ourselves that way, especially if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ. Probably one of the reasons is you have some kind of logical hangups about it. And you go, you know, I don't know what I think about miracles and I don't know what I think about floods. And I don't know what I think about some of these claims. It just doesn't make sense, is what you'll say. Others of you, you'll, you'll say, you know what, I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm trying to share my faith with people that don't know him. And they are asking all these questions and they have all these objections. And I just think, man, if I could just answer this one question, it'd be like zinger, right? And then they would just believe. But here's what I want to tell you today from this passage, unbelief is more irrational than you think. Some of you are thinking, well, I'd believe if I saw a miracle. Would you? Because these people saw a miracle. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And how'd he come? Jesus creates what he commands. Out he comes. And what is the first word of the next verse? Verse 45. Many... Of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them. <laughs> this is the craziest verse in the Bible. Lazarus raised from the dead, many therefore believed. Listen, what should that say? All, everyone believed. I don't know what you have to see. Right? If, if, if a man being raised from the dead doesn't do it for you, then here's the thing. You're not about logic at this point. The religious leaders, they're in the same place. It says in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together. By the way, just to say this, that, those three groups of people, chief priests, Pharisees, council, the chief priests and the councils were Sadducees. They were like the religious liberals who had cozied up to Rome. The Pharisees were the separatists, they didn't like Rome, and they had, uh, you know, basically, they believed in a literal resurrection, they were like the theological conservatives. The only thing they can agree on is they don't like Jesus. What does it say in verse 47? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, right? They don't even deny it. They don't go, well, Lazarus, that was all made up. It was staged. It was phony. They, they can't deny it. They can't explain it away. All they can say is, we don't like it and we got to stop it. See, we are not as rational in our unbelief as we think. In truth, the reason we don't believe is because we don't want to. For those of us who do believe, but in our life, it doesn't look like we believe because we go on sinning. Do you know why we go on sinning? Because we want to. It's not rational. It's crazy. We know that it does not lead to life. We know that it does not lead to joy. We know that it does not lead to fulfillment and love. 
But we keep doing it. Why? Because we want to. Unbelief is not rational. It's nuts. But it's in all of us because we love the darkness. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says, here's why you don't believe. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Are you a skeptic here today? I'm so glad you're here. What a courageous move to come. Hope you'll come back. But I hope as you come back and as you even listen today, you might even just ask yourself, am I actually as rational as I think? Or is it that I just don't want to have to submit to Jesus? I don't want someone telling me what to do. I don't want someone telling me how to use my money and how to use my body and how to use my life. I want to be a free actor. Okay, at least be honest about it. And if you're here and you're trying to reach people who are skeptics, just know that your logic isn't going to win them. This is why you got to pray and you got to share and you got to pray and you got to share and you got to love and you got to pray and you got to love and you got to share and you got to pray and you got to love because it has to be something God does. It's not rational. So, why don't we want Jesus? Well, we love the darkness. And we're threatened by Jesus. Here's our second lesson is that sooner or later, Jesus' kingdom will displace every other kingdom or nation. See, this isn't, this makes sense. If you don't want Jesus to be Lord of your life and he's a threat to your comfort and your power and your status and your influence, then you'll do whatever it takes to stop him. And that's what goes on here, right? They're afraid of what they'll lose if they follow Jesus. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, <laughs> isn't that funny? They always, you know, people in charge always think they're more in charge than they are. <laughs> if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice the order there. They're not really worried about the nation. They're worried about their place their leadership, their authority, their influence. Remember, the religious leaders, especially the Sadducees, chief priests, they'd cozied up to Rome. This is a pretty cozy relationship. We can all get along. But here's their logic. If Jesus continues, everyone's going to believe he's the Messiah. They have lots of political hopes attached to that. Rome is going to get mad about it, and they're going to crush us. And you go, well, is that an irrational fear? No, that's a very logical fear because that's actually what happened. If you study history, you find out that Rome in AD 70 squashed a rebellion that was taking place because basically this exact kind of thing happened. There was a lot of religious messianic fervor. Rome got threatened. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city. This was a legitimate fear. But they're, thre they're, they're threatened mostly about what they're personally going to lose from it. They'll take away our place. In verse uh, 50, it says, Caiaphas says, nor do you understand that it's better for you. He didn't say it's better for the nation that this one man die instead of everyone else. He says it's better for you, leaders. The reality is that Jesus is a threat to every other power. The power in our own hearts and the power more broadly. This is like on my street. I live on this, uh, in this neighborhood where our street's kind of like the main 
thoroughfare that all the other streets in the neighborhood kind of branch off of. And there's this one little spot where I guess the people that live opposite from each other all have a bunch of teenagers or something because there's always tons of cars parked on the street and it's kind of a curve, but it's narrow enough that you really like, every time you kind of pull up to it and there's another car coming, there's like a moment of truth, right? And it, and it usually depends on what? Which car's bigger, right? Or just who's more aggressive, I guess, right? You're getting this like chicken game every time. And, uh, you know, I, until recently, drove this little tiny, you know, toaster oven called a Scion XB. And I'm, so I'm on the losing end of all of these things, right? And uh, you see a Ford F-150 and it's like, I'll just pull over now, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and here's, here's the reality. The claims of Jesus are exclusive dominating claims that force you to pull over or be crushed, right? Jesus is driving an original Hummer coming down this, not the little H2, the little cute Hummer, like the real Hummer, like that's what Jesus is driving down. And, and he's claiming authority and dominion and power and control over everything. And that's why you don't want to believe, because you know I'll be displaced. But, but, but listen, this is also why ultimate loyalty to anything or anyone but Jesus, get this, I don't use this word lightly, this is an intentional word, Ultimate loyalty to anything other than Jesus is stupid. It's folly. It's foolish. Like I, in our house, we, we say, we don't use the word stupid. I'm going to use the word stupid because it's stupid. Jesus is Lord and Jesus reigns and Jesus rules and Jesus will conquer every other power. The scripture says that in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So allegiance, ultimately, to any other thing, it's dumb. Jesus is claiming that he is the king, right? Sometimes we like to say, people will say, you know, I don't, you know, Jesus was never political. I don't like when the church is political because Jesus was never political. Here's what, we, here's what we actually should say. Let's be careful about this. What we should say is Jesus was not partisan, but Jesus was absolutely political, right? How did he announce the gospel? The kingdom of God is at hand. Friends, that's a political statement. There's a new leader, there's a new king, there's a new ruler, there's a new authority in town. That's a political statement. Now Jesus doesn't get into partisanship, but he makes a political statement and they realize this, they know it, they're threatened by it. And allegiance to any other thing ultimately is just folly, right? Like, so, so, so get this, say the Pledge of Allegiance at school, you know, be a patriot who loves your country, but don't love it more than Jesus. Amen. Don't let your love for the nation eclipse your love for God. Because the kingdom of God will be here long after the United States of America is gone. He's the king and he's supreme. And, and Jesus is so supreme that he can even use the sinful actions of people to accomplish his purposes. That's our third lesson. God is supreme in power even over the sinful actions of people. 
God is so sovereign, that means supreme in power. He's supreme in power, so much so that he can even use the sin of other people to accomplish his purposes. That's what's going on here. The, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they gather together. They say, what are we going to do? And here's what it says in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Which, this is such a delicious piece of John's irony. That the man who stands up and says, you know nothing at all, has no idea that what he's going to propose is not going to stop Jesus, but will actually lead to Jesus' victory. <laughs> Don't you love John? Like going, poke, poke, poke. You know nothing at all, Mr. Smart Caiaphas says. He's high priest. You know nothing at all. Uh, verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Which, by the way, he's right about that, right? If Rome's going to get mad and destroy the people and lots of people are going to be killed, he's saying, listen, this just makes sense. It's better that we kind of sacrifice this Jesus guy rather than all of us die instead. So Jesus becomes a sacrifice for the people. That's a smart plan if you're just trying to protect your own power. But look at what it says in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now get this, Caiaphas absolutely 100% meant let's kill Jesus to stop this Jesus thing. But God is so supreme in power, God is so sovereign that he can take a statement like that and say, no, 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 that's actually prophecy. He's the high priest. He's making a prophecy. And while he thinks he's stopping Jesus, he's actually crowning him. God is supreme in power, even over the sinful actions of people. This is significant for us because we often experience the sin of other people, don't we? And we often wonder, how could this be? And how could this happen? And, and is there any hope? And where do I turn if I'm sinned against like this? And so what I want to do is take just a little bit of a rest stop detour into what the Bible teaches about this, because I think it's, it's such a significant question in our lives. And I think it actually gives us a hope that God is in control rather than despair that the world is falling apart. So what theologians call this is the, the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence, here's that definition. Concurrence is when two or more parties act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all the parties having the same intent. So divine concurrence is one person is doing something and God is doing something else in the same event, meaning intending different things. One of the best examples of this is Joseph's brothers in Genesis chapter 50. They had sold Joseph into slavery, which was sinful. It was wicked. It was evil. And Joseph says this. He says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says, you meant to hurt me. You meant to do evil and God meant to do good. It's concurrence. Two different intentions leading to the same result. I love how John Piper describes this verse. He says, notice that it does not say that God used their evil for good 
after they meant it for evil. It says that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, they were designing evil. And in the same sinful act, God was designing good. Right? We, we some, and I don't want to be too picky about this, but sometimes we act like, well, this bad thing happened and God, all, his only choice left is to sort of pick the scraps up off the floor and assemble something good out of it. Now, God can do that. But what concurrence is saying is something even more. It's saying God's not waiting around to pick the scraps up off to make something good. He's actually intending something good through the thing that someone else intended otherwise. Another example, in 2 Chronicles, Rehoboam asks for advice, he gets it, and he ignores the wisdom of the elder people in order to listen to his young friends. It says this, so the king did not listen to the people. That's foolish, right? That's wicked, that's evil, that's dumb. He didn't listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke to that guy with the hard name to say. <laughs> Another example of this is, uh, is the story of Job. In the story of Job, uh, Job and his family are attacked by the Chaldeans. They ransack his property. They kill his servants. And here's what it says. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You say, wait a minute, the Lord took away? I thought the Chaldeans took away. Concurrence. Final example, Jonah thrown into the sea. The storm's raging, Jonah's disobeying. They say, what are we going to do? He says, well, I'm a prophet, I'm disobeying. I guess I need to die, throw him in the ocean. So they, the sailors, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah, though, plopped. It's swallowed up by a fish. And while he's there, he's praying. And in his prayer, he says, for you, the Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Wait, wait, wait. Who, who threw Jonah into the ocean? Didn't the sailors do it? Yes. But Jonah can faithfully say, God did it too. Concurrence. This is the ultimate example, the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is put to death at the hands of lawless men as it was predestined to take place. So get this. This is really key. This means we don't embrace fatalism, which fatalism is just to say it's all figured out. We're just puppets. None of our decisions matter. None of our choices are real. This is all just sort of this big robotic show that God has done because it's all just predetermined. We don't believe that. We believe that there are real choices we make. But we also don't believe in just humanism, which is to say that all that matters are the choices people make. Right? Some of you, you have made decisions that have really hurt your life. And you could be thinking, man, I've, I've ruined my life. Have you? Or could it be that what you meant for evil, God's also meaning for good? See, this is why we have hope. We don't have a God who's up in heaven going, oh, I wish I could help, but I'm just too weak and powerful to do it. No, we have a God who even in the most sinful actions like the crucifixion of Jesus, intends it for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is supreme in power. Are you in pain? Are you in pain, especially at the hands of 
other people. God's at work. And I don't know the answer. And I don't know when it will feel to you like it turned for good. It might not be till eternity. But don't give up hope. Because God is supreme in power and in love, even over sin and death. Here's the last lesson. This is so significant. That's why I saved it for last. Is that substitution is the heart of the gospel. Without knowing it, the high priest of Israel declares the gospel. The high priest of Israel should have been the one waiting for the Messiah to come, should have been the one seeing the signs and the miracles and believing, seeing Lazarus raised from the dead and following the true Messiah, but he doesn't. And yet still, without knowing it, he declares the heart of the gospel. Verse 51, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 50, uh, what's the other one? 50, one man should die for the people. Listen, the heart of the gospel is substitution. It's guilty people being set free and having eternal life because the sinless savior was crucified for our sins. That's the substitution. Now, the thing is, when you actually go through the Bible, you see this everywhere, right? At the very beginning of the story, God had told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this one tree because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they eat of it and they're ashamed and they're heartbroken and they realize what they've done. Their eyes are open. They know that they totally blew it. And they decide to make fig leaves and they cover themselves up with fig leaves. And even in Genesis 3, we get a picture of substitution. Genesis 3.21, look at this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. How do you get a garment of skins? It's like when you have bacon and eggs, they say, you know, the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. You you only get the skins if the animal dies. He didn't cover them with wool that was going to grow back. He covered them with skins. So from the very beginning, rather than Adam and Eve dying for their sins, a sinless animal dies in their place, substitution. This is what we see in Exodus chapter 12 as God is setting his people free. Exodus 12 is the ultimate Old Testament picture of the gospel. And what God says is he says, listen, the angel of death is going to come over the land. And if you will sacrifice an unblemished lamb and you will smear its blood over the doorpost, when the angel comes, he will pass over you. You will experience life because the lamb experienced death. Jesus is what? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Over and over and over, we see that the heart of the good news of God to the world is that though we deserve to die for our sins, that we deserve judgment and hell and wrath, that because of God's love for us, Jesus took that instead. That's the gospel. And if we stop and think about it, actually, we realize that all life-changing love is sacrificial and substitutionary. I say life-changing love, right? Like we can love people who are easy to love, 
and it doesn't cost much. But if you're going to do costly love that's going to really change someone's life, if people are going to love you, it's going to be costly. All life-changing love is sacrifice. Just think about this as we head into Mother's Day next week. Mother's Day, right? We think about parenting. Here's the, here's the deal, basically, that's offered in parenting. No one ever articulates this to you at the hospital. It would be helpful if they did, but they don't. But here's the deal. The deal is, for the most part, you can have a well-adjusted, interesting, thoughtful, self-sufficient adult at the other end of this thing. All it takes is that you basically abandon all self-interest for about 20 years. That's it. That's all, right? You can have a nice, smart, healthy adult on the other end of this, but you just have to go crazy in the meantime, right? You have to sacrifice everything, abandon your independence, right? This is why, this is why you're reading all these dumb books over and over and over, right? Like I'll, I'll call Molly sometimes, uh, you know, and she's kind of on her second wave of, of mothering younger kids. And I'll say, how's your day going? And she'll just say, Red fish, blue fish, one fish, two fish. Right, this woman has a degree in mathematics. And she did not think she would be using it counting the number of red and blue fish. Right, this is why you wipe their butts over and over and their noses and brushing their teeth and giving them attention while they drone on and on about a bunch of details in a story that are so stupid and you don't care. All right, this is why when it's like, hey, time for bed, I just like the thing in my head is kill me. Like, I don't know what it is. There's just something about getting the little ones ready for bed. It's like, oh dear God, just end it for me now. Right, they get sick and what do you do? You hold them and you cuddle them and, and then what happens? You get sick, you absorb their sickness, right? You give up your freedom, you give up your time, you give up, oh, so much money, you give up energy. A lot of you have given up opportunities. I could have done this in my career, I could have done that with my hobby, I could have, and you give it up. Some of you that have experienced and have kids that have special needs, or have had trauma or health challenges, it's like that times a million. And you do it kind of joyfully most of the time we do. Why? Because you know it's either me or them. Either I'll suffer now or they'll suffer forever. And that's the bargain, that's the trade-off, that's the choice you make. You didn't know you made it. Some of you, you had a parent who didn't make it. And you vowed to be different because you know that sacrificial substitutionary love is at the heart of every life-changing relationship. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. We are sick with sin and he comes near and he catches our sin and he dies for it on a cross and he's raised to life again so that we can catch his holiness. We are brought in because he is cast out. We are adopted because he's abandoned. 
Do you get this? Just over and over and over. This is what happens in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven because he's forsaken. One man will die for the people. And not just these people, but to gather into one children of God scattered all over the world. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the hope that we have. Not that we will clean ourselves up and get better. Not that we will be logical and intelligent and smart and figure it all out. But that we'll realize that without Christ, we have nothing. And he's our hope. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. Because we have a hope that comes because Jesus died in our place. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for the gospel. God, we're like Lazarus, dead, helpless, starting to stink. And in your grace, you call us to life. And because you invite us to life, it costs you yours. And we experience freedom and forgiveness and blessing because you experience a death that you don't deserve. And God, you do it because you love us. And so we thank you for that. We pray that it would fill our hearts with joy and that it would allow us to keep loving even when it's hard because we've been loved first. In Jesus' name, amen.